You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Karen Joy Fowler is the author of the Jane Austen Book Club, a New York Times bestseller. She won the World Fantasy Award for her collection Black Glass and the Nebula for her short story What I Didn't See and another Nebula for Always. Her new book is Wit's End. We also have Lori King, the best-selling author of the Mary Russell Sherlock Holmes novels, including Locked Rooms, The Game, and The Art of Detection. Her new novel is Touchstone. Thank you for joining me, Lori. Thank you. And Karen. Thank you. Um, let's see. So, politics and literature. Uh, one of the things that uh, kicked this off was the fact that um, Jim Houston was just down in... Uh, or up in Sacramento, talking to, uh, addressing a crowd, talking about the importance of arts in education and how arts in education imp- allow us to be informed political citizens. And, Lori, I, I wanted to, to ask you about uh, something that, that you've worked with, the California Center for the Book. Yes. Tell us about the California Center for the Book and uh, how that helps, I guess, it's state-funded support for literature. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Yes, it's yes. amazing that such a thing even exists. Your tax-paying dollars goes to such a worthless cause as encouraging reading. Yeah, the the woman who runs it has, I think, probably the world's best job description of encouraging reading. Um, and she has a budget for it, and they do things like um, they invited a number of us to down, to fly down to L.A., and they filmed us talking about the sense of place in our novels for mystery writers talking about um, how we use the place in California and of course um, from a writer's point of view any any object like place does dual duty so you're talking about a physical place but you're also also talking about the mental emotional and <clears throat> political <laughs> overtones of that place um, so, I mean, among other things, the, the Center for the Book does things like this um, video that they put together. Karen, uh, in your latest novel, Wit's End, you have a, a character who's a novelist, uh, Addison, and one of the things she does is she spends a lot of time on the Internet looking at political literature and political um, uh, talk. And one of the things that struck me about that whole theme in your book is that Politics is one of the places that encourages everybody to talk and write and express themselves literarily, lots of people who wouldn't normally do so. I think that I, too, spend a great deal of time on the Internet looking from political blog to political blog. And so one of the reasons for including that in Wit's End was that uh, it allowed me to pretend that all of that time was <laughs> research of some sort. Um, but I also think that when I wrote the Jane Austen Book Club, I, there was I had a very, um, very vivid moment when I was on book tour and uh, uh, one of the booksellers told me that they thought that one of the reasons that the Jane Austen Book Club had done so well was that it was such an apolitical book and that he said that right after 9-11, what everybody wanted was politics in the in their literature, but that by the time uh, the Jane Austen Book Club came out, that people were just exhausted and, and depressed and wished something that took them further away from that. And I think um, that I, I probably, too, was depressed about the political situation and wanted something that took me further away from that and quite enjoyed writing the Jane Austen Book Club and, and sort of allowed me to do that because um, because I was using Austen as a model. One of the great complaints about Austen is that the French Revolution was tearing the world asunder and that you read her books and there's just barely a hint of that. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, it did not surprise me to learn that that was what I had done, but it did make me, there, there was a moment 
just hearing it said so clearly, that made me feel very guilty about it. And I thought, you know, my next book, my next book, I will, I will set in, um, as Laurie said, you know, setting is tremendously important to me. And part of that is, is the time, the things that are going on, the things that are going on in the greater world, around the world of my story. So I really wanted In Wit's End to, to include my own uh, obsessions and my own sense of where we were politically. Well, we have a an email from a, one of the one of the listeners here, and this is her name is uh, Carlina Dakova, Dilakova, and she asks, and I think this is a, will apply to both of you. Is it difficult to balance politics with your writing? Do you have to walk a fine line when introducing politics in your work? A fine line in the sense of worrying about offending readers or pulling too much away from the story. Lori, your last book had many extremely. Uh, con- uh, contemporary political themes, even though it wasn't set in contemporary times. Yes. Um, Touchstone uh, came out earlier this year, and it, I suppose, is my post-9-11 book. Um, Touchstone had its beginnings in those those few weeks, well, maybe even just days, after the 9-11 attacks, when this country looked at itself and said, why did this happen? Not in the sense of what can we do to make it not happen again, but in an honest sense of what are we that brought this on? And of course, um, in no time at all, that was swept under the rug because it was them and us, and we were right and they were wrong, and we had to go ahead and, um, you know, rattle the sabers and and prove that we could take care of ourselves, which doesn't really help in the long term, to my mind. And and this was the basis of Touchstone. Um, It looks at the 1920s. It's a period when England felt itself on the brink of civil war in uh, the, the general strike of 1926. And again, you have this sense that for certain people who feel completely disenfranchised, who feel that they have no choice, um, that terrorism is a viable option. So that when you are writing to, to address the question um, that your your reader sent in. When I am writing a book like Touchstone, um, I try to be as free with opinions in both ends because to do justice to the novel, I have to allow the characters free reign with their passions. And um, my own opinions are in there somewhere between the the character who is so left that, you know, they lose track of him off the coast of California, and the the one who is the beginning of the right-wing fascist uh, movement in Britain. So my my own opinion lie in there somewhere in in the middle, but um, to do justice to the characters and to the situation and the time and place, um, you really have to allow the characters to pull out all the stops. Karen, in, in your work, could you talk about how you you how you portrayed Addison in in Wits End, and how you tried to how much did you separate yourself from that character? In what ways did you separate yourself from that character? And could you talk maybe about how um, you felt afterwards? Did you a, after you finished reading it, or or after it was published, did you feel differently about the the political bent of the character? Or? Well. Um I'll try to answer that question. I'll also try to um, do a little better job of answering the question you asked me first because I did a kind of Sarah Palin little dodge, <laughs> little, little sidestep there oh, about, uh, about the Internet and about you know, people, um, the, the sort of access to, to a microphone that the Internet gives people and the kind of sense that people have of, of kind of all being experts when it comes to their own political opinions and what ought to be done and what ought not to be done. I think that um, 
first of all, that I very, very much admire writers like um, Annie Lamott and Jane Smiley, who who do post on political blogs and are very, um, very persuasive, I feel. Of course, I'm p- part of the choir um, for those two particular writers, but... Um, but but I admire their work often, and I and I often think, you know, that I have passionate political positions myself that I feel a great deal of desperation over. Um, certainly, the the last presidential election felled me for weeks. I c- could hardly raise my head after the results came in. So I, I think, and I am a writer. Well, you know, wouldn't it be a excellent use of my particular talents to try to turn it into some sort of persuasion, um, either in my books or uh, or as these other writers do in, in overtly political pieces um, on the internet. And I think that the, that the things that I'm interested about writing about uh, unfortunately don't fall into those sorts of clean kind of persuasive categories or, or places where where um, I'm very solid in my opinions and I, I wish to persuade other people that I'm right. That the, the kind of thing that I am interested in writing about are generally things where my own position is less clear to me. And, uh, and so the, book, the, the books that I write are far less, uh, I hope, doctrinal and far more exploratory in terms of of what positions might be. Um, in the case of Addison, uh, her political positions are, are entirely mine. I wrote the book out of a great sense of anguish over how happy I was when the Democrats took the Senate and the House in 2006 and how quickly I was disappointed in the results of that. So Addison was a vehicle to express a lot of my own uh, despair over how the Democrats were handling their time in power, which um, did not please me in any way, but um, I think became a part of of the character of Addison, um, and it, but is perhaps the only point at which she and I actually overlap. That there's nothing else about her that is so clearly me as that. One of the things that strikes me is that there are actually overtly hardcore political books that have become uh, also uh, bona fide classics of literature. And one of them, I, I believe you're going to be discussing in a, The Big Read in Dallas, is, is Fahrenheit 451. And, and could you talk about, that's a book that directly in, addresses the impact of literature on politics in a way that, that could only be done, in, I think, in uh, a science fiction or, you know, a setting of the fantastic. I think, um, yes, I'm, I'm going to be in Dallas, and um, t- to my dismay, while the rest of the world will be watching the second presidential debate, I will be talking to whomever is foolish enough to show up to a lecture on Fahrenheit 451. I've been thinking, uh, I've been preparing for the lecture, so I've been thinking a great deal about the book. Um, I think, as is always the case with uh, science fictional dystopias, it's a, a great deal more of a comment on current, the current situation than it is a prediction of the future. The book was published in 1953, so that's the current situation it's a comment on. I've been looking at 1953 and 51 when he wrote the, book, the first story quite a bit. Um, I, uh, one of the things that's interesting to me about it is, is his own, by him I mean Ray Bradbury's own insistence that in spite of the title and in spite of all of the incredibly memorable bits about book burning. He says that it is not a book about censorship, that it's a book about, um, it's not an imposed censorship. It's a book about a society which chooses not to continue to read, which is um, in many ways a more troubling idea. And much more like our our own society. Laurie, uh, could you talk uh, about... um, how 
uh, some of your your work in in Touchstone, um, some of the 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 way those political undercurrents of our time bubble up into your into your work set in the past. Well, I think <clears throat> one of the one of the pleasures and and interests for me in doing historical fiction. Um, and Touchstone is only one of a number of them. I do a series that's set in the teens and twenties. Um, there's eight of those now, and one of the one of the pleasures to me is that you can write about then and now. So that, for example, I wrote one story where these um, it's it's Mary Russell and her partner Sherlock Holmes go off to India uh, in the game, and of course it is uh, it is in a sense, pure escapist, because it's this romp, and there's spies, and there's Kim from, um, you know, from Kim- Kimball O'Hara, who is the, the great Rudyard Kipling hero, um, except he's considerably older now, because it's 1924. And, and so there's all these fun things going on. At the same time, you have an awareness, as you're reading this book, of exactly what happened to this area in northern India and Afghanistan. Um, throughout the ages, so that they are in 1924. They are feeling the presence of um, the independence movement coming in. They feel the echoes of the um, East India Company. And we as readers, or as writers, um, look at it and can see ahead of them the Russian occupation, the British, the Americans, everyone else who's going to get bogged down in this part of the world. So that the characters go blithely their way and comment on the problems that they're having. And the reader looking over their shoulders says, oh, you don't know nothing yet, honey. And it's a similar way with with Touchstone. I mean, Touchstone is a standalone. Well, so far it's a standalone. Um, But looking at this um, class-driven strike of 1926, the coal miners and the other workers um, united against the basically the ruling class of Britain. Um, You have these incredible swarms of uh, political movements and tugs and pulls and um, the fascist, as I said, movement is coming out of this and the the socialists are just over the other side of Europe and um, there's, there's all these um, pulls on the people who are just trying to do their, their daily job. Um, and y- you have certain people whose fingers are on the pulse to the extent that they realize one small push in one small direction will change everything. Um, and that, that indeed is, is what the terrorist mentality is, that if you just nudge in a certain direction the entire society can flip over and go go in the way you want it to. Now, one of the things that allows us to do that is, in, I think, in a sense, the literature. And, and um, it, the one of the ways that uh, I think literature has a big impact are these things like the Big Read, um, the, the Steinbeck Festival, which takes us back to, you know, Steinbeck's work, which was also very viewed as very political and, and you know, a, a harbinger of potential socialism. Oh, my God, we, we, we wouldn't want that in this country. So I'm wondering if, uh, uh, Laurie, you could talk a little bit about um, some of your – the work – that uh, these festivals, these big reads, the the big social um, attempts to get people to read, because I think once people who read are also able to read those big, thick voting books, uh, and I understand that California's voting book this year is the biggest that it's ever been. Works of fiction all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of anything that gets people reading. I even put uh, graphic novels in front of my kid because that was what he liked to read. So, uh, you know, if it's got pictures, it doesn't matter, just so long as it has words and a story. Um, I, I, find these, I find these both book clubs and the more, the, the grander of big read style things are, are really very interesting because the way they focus on a book as a community experience 
um, not just as a teaching thing and, um, you know, something that we can get lessons about, but as a community experience, as a way of trying to encourage people to talk about ideas and um, emotions that come out of, a, out of a book. I personally have not belonged to reading clubs, but I run one on the website. We have a virtual book club. And it's been very interesting because this month we're starting on um, Tim O'Brien's um, The Things They Carried as preparation for reading a book that I wrote about Vietnam next month. And so the discussion at the moment is going on about um, the war experience and to find a lot of people who are writing in about their um, you know, their father's experiences at Dunkirk and the terror of hiding on the beach for a week waiting for the the little boats to come back and take you away, um, allows the community to come together and say, okay, this was part of what Vietnam or um, Afghanistan or Iraq is. Um, what does that tell us about where we are now? Karen? Yes. This is, you know, this is all... The, the thing that books do really well is give you a sense of the world as a complicated place uh, and and decisions as um, as having uh, unpredictable consequences and perhaps unknown causes and so to me there's often this troubling disconnect between between that world which is where I do want people's political consciousness to be formed and you know I, I, yes I like the idea of books as communities and I like the idea of of a political discussion which is a complex and inclusive one and then you know the actual world of the media politics which is so soundbite driven and, and works so against having any sort of historical perspective or complex sense of of what's involved um uh, you know the whole the whole kind of grading of the debates in terms of whether somebody makes over the course of 90 minutes one memorable line of seven words or so that will uh will be picked up on the evening news and repeated or or if one person is better at looking into the camera or the other one isn't and th there's um uh, you know, speaking, uh, of course, as one must of um, of 1984. The, also, this sense that that language, that the actual attachment of words to facts, is been incredibly loosened. So that today or yesterday, I think it was today, Cheney can come out and say that the Bush administration has been. Um, incredibly focused on uh, environmental issues and very, very, very helpful to uh, the endangered species of the world. And, uh, you know, that there's just, there's just a, a sense that you can say anything. And somehow in the political world, it... It, I, I guess I'm not saying that it goes completely unchallenged, but that it goes largely unchallenged, that it somehow now exists as something that apparently you can say, all facts to the contrary. I have no idea where I'm going with this. but Well, I think that you find the same thing on the Internet, don't you? I mean, you, you have so much disinformation out there that you can prove absolutely anything. You can, you know, you can prove that that Barack Obama is really a terrorist or uh, I mean honestly it, the the number of the number of voices out there clamoring for attention mean that there's it's very difficult to find a balanced viewpoint my brother is working on a project that i find very interesting he's a teacher in a community college he's a math teacher but he's putting together just a set of lessons which involve really teaching people the ability to move from a set of data to a conclusion, and um, and he occasionally will share with me some of the responses he gets from students, some of the emails he gets as they're working through a particular unit, and and they will actually say things like, um, "Well, I found this 
this unit on global warming much easier than I found the last unit on the salmon fisheries because I already knew what I believe about global warming and therefore you know, could assess the data in a, a more efficient way. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, uh, this all goes to the, the power of, of language uh, to create our world for us uh, in, in contrast to anything that might be action, uh, happening in physical reality and, and also the power of narrative. I think that's one of the, one of the, the things that uh, literature does really well and, and, and is, can also be very easily abused by, in the, the political realm. Is to, it's very easy to create a narrative and the more simplistic the narrative, the, the quicker it grabs us and the easier it take more it takes hold. And yeah, one of, one of my um, responses to the whole Iraq war thing has been, you know, just to sort of watch in horror the power of the war narrative, just how many people who are, are not involved in the fighting in any way are, are so caught up in the idea of, of the heroism of it and the excitement of it and... Um, and and do not wish to look at details that make them uncomfortable, like who is actually being killed or what is actually happening on the ground or, you know, who is coming home in a body bag, but just the, the sort of sheer excitement of, um, of that narrative, which we see in book after book after book and movie after movie after movie, which I do not in any way mean to suggest is happening in The Things They Carried, which I think is a fantastic book about war. I am I want to uh, ask you, uh, one of the things that uh, happened, that we are seeing a lot happening now, and I think this has a lot to do with uh, the, the power of narrative, is the um, we'll see that when lies are uttered, in the media, we'll see some some uh, a flat out lie or a mistake is made. The attempt to debunk that lie ends up spreading it more, and I think this is a really fascinating phenomena that that uh, goes to our goes straight to our ability to read and understand what 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 we're reading. I think this this also is something that is amplified a hundred times on the internet. You know, one of the things about the internet is that everything there appears to be permanent there's you know once a friend of mine um some uh, biography of him you know some some quick little wikipedia entry i don't know where it first appeared but just had his birth date wrong the the year is off by four years and he said there's just no way to correct it that he, he might as well just change his birth certificate because <laughs> it just cannot be fixed. <laughs> yeah. We'll get back to my discussion with Lori King and Karen Fowler in a moment after a brief break. Tune in to Talk of the Bay this evening at 7 p.m. for part two of a look at how the credit crunch is affecting the local economy. Rachel Ann Goodman talks with economists, mortgage experts, and others about how you might be affected by what's happening on Wall Street and in Congress. That's Talk of the Bay this evening at 7 p.m. on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. At Capitola Book Cafe, Danny Goldberg discusses his book, Bumping into Geniuses, My Life Inside the Rock and Roll Business, Monday, October 6th at 7.30 at Capitola Book Cafe. Details at One of the things that you do quite well in your book is uh, to to use humor, and, and I think uh, 
humor is a is a something that's often used as a literary political tool and, and again quite effectively i'm thinking of my favorite one of my favorite philip roth's books is is our gang from back his uh, satire of the nixon administration from back way back in the oh, 60s i'm embarrassed to admit i have not read that oh well it's it's extremely silly and it has a great speech uh in which he describes a cub scout knife as a as a weapon for terror with a bottle opener being actually a glottal opener for tearing the throat <laughs> out. And they also unveil a plan to extend the voting age to those who are just conceived. <laughs> Someone was just telling me recently about a book. I'm, I'm sadly I'm at that age where I won't remember the title or the author, but it's an alternate history where somebody goes back in time and um, tries to uh, steer Ronald Reagan to the Oscar, thinking that if his acting career had really worked out, it was all that was needed. Well, um, this is something that uh, I, I believe uh, you brought up. There's, there's actually a long and a history of uh, works that um, celebrate or uh, lampoon the victory of one side or another and this is uh, you know uh, uh, actually a literary genre called the dystopian literature you, of course the king of all this is 1984 written as we all know in 1948 and they wouldn't let him publish it under that date which i believe is what he originally oh, wanted I to did do not know that. yeah his publisher said no 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 you this is not <laughs> happening right now <laughs> is it um so i i'm wondering Lori, you published a a a lovely dystopian novel. Well, it's catching you a bit po- unprepared, but post-apocalyptic post- <laughs> is that? Uh, you mean Caliphate's daughters? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I don't know if you could even call it dystopian because there's elements of it that are really quite utopian, aren't they? I mean, you know, the women ruling things, living in a village out in the hills. I mean, come on now, Rick. What, what could be better than that? I think that's always the case, yeah. that there are elements in every dystopia of things that you think, oh, well, I wouldn't mind that part. Yeah, I think that there are... She doesn't find the dystopia until she gets up to Southern Oregon. I mean, California's fine in, <laughs> in that book. It's it's Oregon that has the creepos. <laughs> well, uh, I'm wondering if, uh, Karen, you could talk a little bit about some of the in the, the dystopian aspects, of course, of Fahrenheit 451. I mean, it, it's not a happy place, world to live in, is it? It is not a happy world to live in. Um, uh, although, um, again, I, you know, it's not clear that everybody in it understands how unhappy it is. Uh, it, it may look more unhappy from the outside to those of us who are not properly medicated. Uh, well, that's one of the more frightening aspects of a, of a dystopia is when those within it do not perceive the dystopian aspects of the society in which they live, which may be us right now. We are somebody's dystopia somewhere. Well, exactly. I think, you know, this is what lends such alarm to the whole actual political scene is that you're always thinking, is this the, the tipping point? Is this the tipping point? Is this the point where I should be sounding some sort of alarm? As uh, we have real life and and many fictional examples, uh, Fahrenheit 451 being one of them, of worlds that appear to have just sort of drifted into some sort of um, place that is, in fact, not livable. But uh, well, I think many of us felt that after the after the election four years ago was. I mean, the the, the number of applications for. Yes, but but in a way, four years ago was even worse because we thought, well, surely this can't happen twice. I mean, yes. I mean, now everyone knows what they're getting into, and but to to you know the the, the number of um, applications for um, people moving to New Zealand and Ireland, I think, were the highest <laughs> that they've ever been in record. So, I. If it happens again now, you you know, there's going to be lines around the door of every New Zealand embassy in the world, I think. Certainly that's where I'll be. Yeah, I'm heading to Vancouver myself. <laughs> well, one of the things that puzzles me about um, Fahrenheit 451 is that, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's an element in it um, about television. The uh, wife of Montag, the main character, has 
persuaded him to purchase three walls in a room now on which the television is playing and, and wishes to close it off, wishes the fourth wall. So, um, so in many ways, this, in ways I'm sure Ray Bradbury did not anticipate, is kind of a metaphor for a virtual world that we see in uh, later books expressed in other ways. The puzzling part to me is that on the few occasions in the book, when we see what's on these screens and what is showing on the television, it is so incredibly dull that you just, the idea that, it's like in some way Bradbury didn't have faith in the power of the narrative, in suggesting that people could be satisfied with something that was not a narrative, that was in fact a sort of, appears to be just a sort of long-running, very banal kind of dinner table conversation in which nothing is really addressed and and there and no forward movement is ever made. And, you know, whatever else you can say about the impact of television on our lives or the impact of video games on our lives, um, they're, they're not dull. They, you know, they, they use the tried-and-true bits of fiction and and story that have always worked and always will work. I'm I'm not sure that I'd agree that they're not dull. Um, I think some of them are dull, and I think some of them depend on repetitive um, storylines too much. I mean, it, sometimes the the. the the offerings on you know if you go across and look at everything available on your on your satellite channel at 7:30 you begin to feel kind of like remember that section in um was it the once in future king where um where the wart goes down and lives among the it's ants. The ants, yeah. And the ants have the little songs, and they play over and over and over again. Oh, I love that song. Yes, I love that song. That's a really great song. Let's play that song again. Let's play that song again. And that's what you sort of feel as you're cruising through the through through the satellite channels. Is oh, let's play that song again. Yeah, I, that's great. <laughs> yes, I don't really want to sit here and argue that television is not dull, but <laughs> I do think. Um, and, you know, yes, I, too, have all of those channels and rarely can find anything I actually wish to watch on them. But uh, thinking about the reality television shows that, um, you know, are, are, as far as I can tell, carefully structured around some sort of stake. Somebody is going to be cast out. Somebody is going to succeed. Uh, there's a challenge. There's, um, you know, as I said, there are, are many, many sort of plot elements um, imposed on these supposedly we're, ju- we're just going to set the camera up and let it roll and see what happens kinds of shows. Well, and one of the things that strikes me is that um, one of the ways that we, best ways that writers can define characters is by talking about their politics and that Politics is a is a powerful tool for characterization, even in these reality TV shows, and indeed across the entire spectrum of literature. It's a good it's a good not only a good plot driver, but it's a good characterization tool. And Laurie, certainly you use that in Touchstone. Yeah, yeah. It's it works so long as um, I mean I'm when I am writing a book, I tend to steer clear of the kinds of identifiers that are ephemeral. So that if if you read one of my books in 10 or 20 years, I would like it to make sense. And I think an awful lot of novelists, especially in genre fiction, where I am at home most of the time in, in mystery wor- the mystery world, um, you tend to use um, shorthand so that when you refer to they're wearing a certain kind of jeans or shoes, um, it's a bit of a problem because since I, I, as I said, I live in a hole, I, I don't know what jeans and shoes it tell about someone. Um, but beyond that, it, it's 20 years from now, that, that's not going to make any, that cultural reference will make no sense. And similarly with politics, unless you choose the big elements of it, um, if I refer to someone who um, is in favor of Schwarzenegger, that's fine, but in 30 years will people remember that he was something other than a very large actor? Uh, well, I, 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 that's actually, I have to say that's one of uh, 
uh, my favorite quotes from you, Karen, <laughs> if you can uh, give that to us. The Schwarzenegger one? Yes. That's... This is my general answer to people who complain that I don't write realistic fiction, is that a world in which Arnold Schwarzenegger can be governor of California is not a world in which the tools of realistic fiction are really appropriate. <laughs> Actually, I, I don't agree about the cultural markers, and um, perhaps because I use so many of them, but when I'm writing historical novels, um, I'm always looking for those cultural markers. I'm always trying to 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 do a kind of research that will show me, you know, yes, what what clothes, I'm actually not very interested in clothes, but I'll use that as an example, you know, what, what clothes would say about someone and um, what, uh, I think maybe because I have read so much science fiction that, that to open up a book and have to do a little work to figure out what the reference to Schwarzenegger means seems to me part of the fun, seems to me part of making the time come alive again. And since I do it historically, I tend to do it when I'm writing contemporary as well. I think that what what I tend to aim for in that kind of thing is to is to give the specifics but enough of a general so that people will will know. So that for example, if I make a mention of Mosley in Touchstone, um, 9 out of 10 Americans won't know who I'm t- talking about. But if I also mention something about the fascist party, they'll get the flavor of it. So it's, you know, I, I love that you were have... talking about Walter Mosley. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. No, no. Little different Mosley, 1926. Got it. Um, but, you know, it's the kind of thing that I, I love the texture of historical fiction that you can, if somebody is an expert in the 20s, I want them to feel at home there. If someone knows nothing about the 20s, I want them still to feel that this is a familiar place to them, that they know people like this, even though they don't know who I'm, uh, you know, this reference to Mosley or Churchill or um, the prime minister, whomever. Well, um, as we um, move out from character, the other thing that I know that Karen was talking about was was the sense of place. And Karen and I have talked uh, quite a bit about the sense of place in literature and um, Part of the sense of place uh, of any place is, of course, the politics that because that's, that helps create the society in which the the characters are moving, in which the the books take place. So, uh, Karen, tell me a little bit about, say, for example, uh, Sarah Canary, how the politics of the time in, informed that book. I I set Sarah Canary in uh, eighteen seventy three because there were a couple of historical incidents from that year that I wish to use. And, you know, having made that decision, I began to do a lot more research about 1873. One of the things that that surprised me was how comfortable with that period I was. How many, um, you know, I grew up, uh, came of age at least in the 60s. And there, 1873, were recovering from a devastating war. Um, and the landscape just appeared to be littered with cults and um, various uh, experiments in sexuality and uh, many, many, many things that made me think, I know, I know this world, I know this world. I think that um, that uh, that I'm very attracted to that particular period, perhaps because the 60s are so hard to write about that I can kind of write about the 60s a little bit if I write about 1873, which I find much, much easier to write about. 1873, I will say, I just found a very rich and fascinating year, and I gather that when I was writing the book, I became very adept at turning any conversation anyone tried to have with me to the remarkable (laughs) events of 1873, so much so that... My husband at one point leaned across the table and said, I'm betting 1874 was a damn fine year, too. <laughs> I wondered um, if, the, if the 1920s appealed to you oh, yeah. in the same yeah, yeah. kind of way. I mean, the 20s, especially um, when you start looking at... Because, of course, in Britain, and I'm, I'm writing about Britain, um, in Britain, the absolute and utter devastation of the Great War... Um, 
was felt on into the 30s and until the, the Second War, in fact. Um, and of course, the, the U.S., we never suffered from Vietnam in the same way. Emotionally, it was as divisive. But it, um, as just as far as numbers of people, no, it's incomprehensible taken, um, to us. I think. But but the the results and the way it shook society um, are are very similar. I mean, the women's movement that you see in the twenties and in the in the sixties and in the very 1870s. similar. I, I must move to the eighteen seventy three. I'll meet you in the twenties at some point. Um, because it, yeah, I mean, it feels very much at home, and you can talk about things that I, I grew up with too, um, that you know that feel real, and even though they're in the 1920s, and even a lot of the slang that you see um, is quite funny because you'll find yourself writing something, and your editor will write back and say, "Is this anachronistic?" And you'll say, "Well, oddly enough, no, it's not." <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it strikes me if both of you are, uh, to a certain extent interested in the 1960s and why don't you feel comfortable writing about the 1960s and, and politics essentially since the, the politics of those years have a, such a heavy impact into our current state of affairs. Karen? I think um, I, for a long time I had this plan which I may do or I may not do uh, to write a trilogy that took place in San Francisco. Um, I've written the first book of it, which is Sister Noon, takes place in San Francisco in the 1890s. I wanted to write another one that took place in about the 1940s. And then I wanted to write one that took place um, during the uh, Moscone and Harvey Milk assassination period and the Jim Jones and um, things that I remember vividly. And I think the thing that has, one of the things that has always stopped me is that I don't think I can write the last one, I don't. I I feel no concern about writing about times and places I haven't lived through, and yet, the ones that I have, um, I feel very anxious about. One of the things about the '60s, I'm afraid, it comes down very simply to the kind of language, the the sort of um, slogans and and vernacular and slang. It, you're sort of instantly in this um, caricature of the period so uh, you know to find some sort of way to evoke the period as it actually felt to me without tipping over into some sort of character i think involves not actually using the the words that were used um it, this seems to be one of the, the i think the real uh problems of where politics and literature meet is that it's very hard to write to employ the passions that the writers feel about the politics of their time without tipping over into caricature and without tipping over into uh, just complete ranting, essentially. So I, I wonder, it, and this is, and of course, that's why writers will employ either historical fiction or works of the fantastic to to write about the time without writing about the time. And I wonder if you could comment on that, on you know the. Uh, for example, uh, one of the great books of the Vietnam War is The Forever War by Joe Haldeman. And it, it, there are a number of works of the fantastic that address uh, literature, that address wars and, and different uh, pe periods of time that actually have nothing, uh, at least apparently, have nothing to do with that time. Well, uh, as I started off saying about Fahrenheit 451, I think it's, you know, it's a, tr a truism that... Um, dystopias and um, books that take place in the future tend not, in fact, to be about predicting the future at all, but tend, in fact, to be comments on on the present almost invariably. Uh, Lori, uh, your, your book set in, in this future um, in which uh, women have, uh, are, are running things, um, could you talk a little bit about the what what you were going through and what you felt when you were writing that book and, and what you were, what aspects of our world you were addressing when you were writing that God, book? God, I shudder to think. Um, what was I, what was I going through? I can't think. Um, I, I think, I think that the, I mean, the idea of writing 
the 60s, as, as you were saying, is, is tough because it's immediate and because it's so complex and there were so many things and what do you leave out and um, where do you thread a story through everything that I went through during the 60s? And, and, and of course, everyone, all, all, all of the people reading it, um, most of them remember it themselves and they'll all argue with you about it. The advantage of writing the 20s, or indeed a future, is that it's easier to make the bones. It's easier just to treat the bones and to just put enough detail on it to, to enrich it, to put flesh on it. Um, you don't have to deal with absolutely everything that's going on. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a book called The Long Weekend um, about the period between the wars, which the entire book... Um, dealing with all the things that people were into, you know, the literature, the politics, the um, the fashion, the music, the everything. And if I were to try and incorporate realistic amounts of detail about all those things in a book like Touchstone, it would go from 500 to 1,500 pages just to try and fit it all in. And I think the idea of doing that kind of novel about such... Uh, crucial time as the 60s and doing it justice um, is daunting for that reason is because where do you find the story thread in the midst of incredible tangle of activity and politics and um, music and uh, new ideas and excitement that was going on then um, I do have a 60s book in the back of my head uh, whether I'll ever write it I don't know um, but I think that, that Touchstone, one of the things I'm thinking of doing with that is to look at the arc of political life in Europe between the wars. So the Touchstone is 1926. Um, there would be two and perhaps three more covering um, the late 20s and in the 30s leading up to the Second World War to make it a sort of maybe three you know either a trilogy or four books not an open-ended series but i like the idea of allowing these characters to span the activity and the um, events of those periods karen apparently uh, we're both dreaming of trilogy yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things that that uh i think uh political literature does and actually does does quite well is to uh it gets people at least talking about books whether they're good or bad or anything um an overtly political book an overt uh, like a political satire and again i'm thinking of uh, philip ross our gang it really gets books back out into the forefront of things that people talk about and i think that's one of the 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 powers of, of that politics can bring to literature it can bring bring literature back out of the the library in a sense and again onto the editorial pages i people are absolutely not shy about people who would never write a letter to a friend people who would never like even pick up a book or would only read the funny section of the newspaper they are not shy about getting down and writing a letter to the editor telling them just how they want to kick those bums out and which bums they want to kick out I, you know I, those are all things that i had not thought about but um it occurs to me as you're saying that that i would think that in the case of say a writer like margaret atwood that certainly as far as I'm aware, the book of hers that gets mentioned the most and gets the most attention is The Handmaid's Tale, which is the which is a very overtly political dystopian book um, dealing, as you said, with with subjects on which uh, you know I guess people m maybe uh, if absolutely if, divided. Yes, but but also you know that that maybe people feel uncomfortable maybe some people feel uncomfortable trying to determine what's a good book and what's not a good book how imagery works how symbolism works but whether you know religion is a, a force for good or evil in the world everybody has something to say about that Lori yeah I um I like to bring religion into the books partly because that's my background um 
but it also enables you to to do some interesting things with um, how religious impulse and political impulse intertwine. Um, one of the early Russell books is about um, a women's group in London in the early 20s. Um, and they're a combination of political and um, social work, as there were any number of similar groups at the time. Um, and they are impelled by a woman who is basically a mystic, um, which, you know, it's the kind of it's the kind of writing that I think a lot of people puzzle over because with that book it's called A Monstrous Regiment of Women, and a lot of people with that book um, will say, "I really like the book. Why did you have to have so much religion in it?" And on the other hand, you'll have a lot of people who say, "I really like the book. I wish you'd put more religion in it." <laughs> <laughs> so I figure if you get equal time criticism on both sides, you're, you're doing okay. Um, not too many people have commented on either way with Touchstone. You know, I don't, haven't had people saying, I wish you'd put more politics in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, one of the things I really liked about Touchstone was, you know, bringing back the days. I, I, I think it's high time we bring back, you know, the days, start remembering these bomb-throwing anarchists because we're, we're, we're looking at this and thinking, oh, my God, this has never, ever happened before. And, you know, it, it's... It's just uh, history repeating yeah, again and again. Business as usual. Yes. Um, we're going to pause for a brief break, and we'll be right back. Tomorrow afternoon on the Diane Reem Show from NPR, in Hour One, an update on the latest efforts to address the credit crisis, a look at the House response to the revised $700 billion rescue plan, and how homeowners and Wall Street are reacting. In Hour 2, many consider him the most powerful, most secretive vice president in the nation's history. A Pulitzer Prize-winning author analyzes Vice President Dick Cheney's role in the decision to invade Iraq, new domestic surveillance programs, and the promotion of harsh interrogation techniques. Tomorrow afternoon on The Diane Reem Show from NPR at 1 p.m. here on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. Stay tuned. Coming up next is... Next is Rachel Ann Goodman with Talk of the Bay, part two of a look at the, how the credit crunch is affecting the local economy. That's coming up next on KUSP. We've been speaking with Karen Joy Fowler and Lori King. Lori, uh, just to, to wrap this up, uh, we're, we've been talking about politics and literature, and I'm wondering if you could give me your thought on, do you think that um, politics and literature are, are, how intertwined are they? And how, how I'm talking about fiction. Let's, let's bring it back to just fiction. The, the power of fiction in a, the political world, do you think there's some power there that, to, to affect political change? Oh, I hope so. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. Um, I think that it's very um, revealing that in a lot of countries um, where the government has been repressive for a long, a long time, the voice that is heard is quite often that of not just fiction but genre fiction, so that you get um, detective fiction in in countries that have repressive regimes because it's just storytelling it's permitted um but it but it's a very uh, very sly way of sneaking a message through karen i don't you know there are certainly are clearly a handful of books which have had uh, enormous impact on the political situation um i don't i guess i'm i'm not sure whether I think books in general have that can have that kind of impact or are likely to have that kind of impact, uh, I uh, my kind of final thought, I guess, when I was as I've been looking at some at material to deal with Fahrenheit 451, I found many many lists of utopian books and dystopian books, and it seemed to me that, with kind of one exception, you can find dystopian books that. 
uh, cover everything that you know anything you can imagine there appears to be a book in which you're either forced to do it or not able to do it and uh, the only one that you aren't is the opposite of Fahrenheit 451 a dystopia where you're forced to read book after book after book (laughs) (laughs) we've been speaking with Lori King and Karen Joy Fowler thank you for joining us ladies thank you thank you about there's something evolving wherever may come the world keeps revolving they say the next big thing is here that the revolution's near listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>